On this episode of Eager to Know, the golden age of adult films, how constraints can force creativity, and keeping things moving forward in our world full of distractions. We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McEachran, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. For the past couple weeks, I have been listening to the Rialto Report podcast in order to prepare for this interview. I absolutely loved it. It is very interesting, well done, and I could not be more excited to speak with its co-founder, April Hall. The Rialto Report is an oral history, audio, photo, and documentary archives from the golden age of adult film in New York. We start our conversation by speaking about the range that is found in their interviews. So tell me about which of your podcast episodes that you like. Oh, God. Like, who's my favorite baby? That's yeah. so bad. Yeah, I mean, I think um, they're different formats. So um, while I love the one-on-one -on -one interviews because... You know, I like any kind of extended, deep, personal connection with somebody and conversation with somebody. The ones I think I love the most are more the story crafts where we're almost narrating a a multi-layer story. Yes. Um, you know, so those really those really um, appeal to me in terms of making them. You know, I don't know from a listener perspective what other people would think, but in terms of the production, that's probably the most satisfying. Yeah. So some of them, uh, I can see how there definitely is two different, well, many different flavors, but those yeah. are kind of two distinct flavors. One of them is the story arc, which that definitely sounds interesting. And then some of them, it sounds like I'm listening into a psychiatrist session. <laughs> it really Those does. Those must be fine. Like uh, everybody always jokes, it's um, Ashley and myself, and he, he has like every detail of the industry, every background, knows everybody and stuff. And I'm like, how did that make you feel? Totally. So people always joke with me because that's you know what's what interests me is not so much the sex industry, although it's fascinating as an industry, you know, and because of its nature, it sort of attracts unique stories, but it's just the humanness of it, you yeah. know, and the vulnerability of it. So that's, you know, like any great story, if you can get to that layer of human, you know, I think it's that that's what gets me going by far. Yeah. So I've been listening to these for the past two weeks and I've been telling everyone about them and telling everyone that they need to listen to this podcast because I I really enjoy it. So I've listened to, I'm just going to go down to tell you all the ones I've listened to. Christy Canyon, oh. Kelly Richards, who's uh, from Boston and I love her accent. Yes, I know, right? Lynn LeMay, Seika, Leslie Winston, which I just listened to, the Jerry Butler, I think there was... The, uh, Helga. Andrea True. I had no idea that Andrea True was the singer of that song from the 70s. Oh, really? No, I had and no idea. It's so funny because I think even back in the day, well, they tried to keep it distance, but mostly everybody knew. So it was part of its appeal, you know, but uh, so interesting. So you, you've listened mostly to, I mean, Andrea True is a little bit different, but like more of the one-on-one -on -one stories, it sounds like, versus the crafted narratives. Yes. So I feel like, yeah, I think so. Uh, and I and I and I don't even know how I've picked. I don't even know how I've decided which ones to to pick. I think I tend to like I tend to like the females better 
Um, I think that's more interesting to me. That listening to a, uh, a female speak about her, you know, being in the porn industry as opposed to the men. I'm curious. Why? Um, I think it's because of my, just my view on sexuality, like, because I grew up with four sisters, four older sisters. And I don't know, I think my view on women and sex is like very, um, like old school. Like I'm like shocked that women like sex type of thing. And, you know, plus being a gay man, like, I, I was don't just know, gonna say, you know, like a true gay man. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is, to- this is totally true. And I have to tell you that I had, to- I watched some, you know, some straight porn in the researching for this. I hadn't watched straight porn since college. So, and even that it was a bit, uh, you know, because I watch gay porn, but watching straight porn, it was a bit jarring. Like, oh my gosh, like women are doing this. It's re- so it really like brought up all sorts of stuff for me. That's you know kind of interesting. So, what's your reaction to to that statement from me? Well, it's I think well, like my question was more: Did you watch contemporary straight porn or did you watch 1970s straight porn? I was old. It was like I was basically looking after I would listen to um, someone that you interviewed. Then I would like, I want to see this person performing. And it, and it was, so I would like go on whatever Pornhub and it was very jarring. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like she's doing that type of thing. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It is. It is funny. Well, it's also, um, I think, you know, uh, Ashley and I always say this, that um, it's not porn that interests us so much as it's porn plus time. You know, for me, it's the fact that I'm talking to people, you know, 35, 40 years after the fact, some of them have grandkids, you know, they've gone on to do all kinds of things. And a lot are like, why are you asking me about my summer job 35 years ago? Like, it's weird. Um, And that's what's fascinating to me, you know, so I picked up on that when you were describing it straight away, because we're looking back at people in a moment of time. And that's what I love about interviewing them now it's sort of like I think the hardest part of what we do is trying to crack through the narrative so everybody you know constructs their own narrative that's not just for porn right like if I asked you on an interview you'd be like I'm Ricky I'm the artist I'm you know and you would sort of start that way and it's hard to get underneath that because it's the way we sort of enter into the world and so I think that's what you know I certainly try to do um, because it's a very I mean, it probably pays to go back to kind of understand how we got to the podcast in a way, but like it's a, it's usually built on relationships. It's not very often that we are interviewing somebody cold okay, and they haven't talked to us yet. Yes. So, you know, I think basically um, when my husband and I have been married about a little over 15 years and he had just come to New York and was interested in telling stories outside of his day job and, you know, was interested in New York because he had grown up, um, he's English, but he grew up in Italy and, you know, had seen Taxi Driver and all these things. It was like, great, New York's going to be awesome. And then he comes here in the 2000s and it's like, what? What mm-hmm. is this place? And, you know, felt like he'd, you know, come to the party after everybody left sort of thing. So we started by wanting to make stories about New York is like a symbol of change. Like, why was he having that reaction? And so we, you know, kind of talked about a few things and we narrowed on Times Square as a symbol of change. And when you go to Times Square, you quickly get to the sex industry. And so for 
for a long time, we did video interviews of people. We've interviewed hundreds of people and we actually rough cut a documentary. And then we said to ourselves in order to um, build an audience for this film, let's start a podcast. And we also just were really falling in love with the medium of podcasts because it's long form, you know, like a film that we were going to do, you know, it's going to be what, a couple of hours to tell a story. Like any one person, if you do a collective is going to be, you know, a few minutes or whatever. It's whereas obviously in a podcast setting, you're getting, you know, to really get underneath somebody and what they do. So, so anyway, so a lot of these people that we've wound up interviewing, like we've known them for many years, I mean, different levels of, you know, um, intimacy in those relationships but it's um it's always a help you know when especially i think it's a weird industry because people especially back in the day felt sort of taken advantage of in some ways meaning financially even though it was a lot of money for them at the time they saw that over the years people who distributed their films went on to make so much money off of those films and they never saw any of it and so there's this consciousness of you know kind of being taken advantage of for what you have to offer. So I think as soon as people understand we don't do it for any kind of commercial gain or anything like that, and that we're not getting on there and being like, hey, what's the best sex you ever had? Yeah. You know, who's the, and like, we're not too interested in that. It becomes a, it, it usually kind of brings down the barriers. Yeah. Anyway, that, I yeah. will take a breath. Yeah, no, that, yes, that, <laughs> that, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. So it sounds like Times Square sounded like a focal point and then from there, of, of your interest, and then from there you realize that the sex industry was a big part of that. Is, is that what drove you to the subject matter of the podcast? Or was it, like, how did the the subject matter of adult films become the focus? Is that something that you two were interested in? Or was it something that was revealed to you as you started exploring Times Square? Yeah, I mean, it's um, so Ashley, who grew up in Italy, um, when he was a young boy, the local cinemas used to play these sort of sexploitation, exploitation, and eventually even hardcore films. And so at a very impressionable age, as you might imagine, when the hormones are starting to course in, he was seeing this people. And aside from the fact that it was titillating to him as a young guy, um, I think he was just like, who are these people? You know, he's like in kind of Madonna whore Italy and he's watching, you know, these people having sex on screen and being like, oh my God. So he'd always had a fascination with the subject matter. And I think, um, you know, for, for me, it wasn't so much like, oh my God, I have to understand adult film. But I think the reason when we talked about Times Square and I, you know, he has, I knew he had that background. We talked about it because once you start talking Times Square, you talk about the films and stuff. And I think for me, you know, my, my views on sex have always been very open, meaning like, you know, everybody like do what you want and have a good time as long as nobody's getting taken advantage of like, you know, uh, like go for it. And I always have been uncomfortable with sort of the prurient nature of the states and how judgmental people are and stuff. So I think my interest was in exposing sort of these people for as people, mm. <laughs> you know, and you've done that. You have done try, that. Trying to, you know, to just be like, these aren't just people who fuck on camera, right? These are, these are people, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, 
so I think that sort of his background plus my like sparked interest in that but like we don't sit around and watch porn I feel like it's like we read playboy for the articles we kind of do yeah it's really like we're the (laughs) we're so boring you know like we're just like we don't like everybody's always disappointed by us (laughs) we are the vessels that's all so that's one thing that i noticed was everyone is so different in these interviews because i think i probably had a preconceived idea of what someone who got into porn what they would be like in terms of personality or or whatever everyone's different like and everyone's uh personality is different everyone's background is different everyone's experience in the industry is different some of the people it was kind of a rough although not that many you know some of them had a tough experience um most of them it seemed had a really uh good experience yeah i think that definitely surprised me I didn't expect it to be one size fits all like oh all the girls are abused and all you know whatever but I think I thought I would hear more negative you know or more regret from people yeah and even as we've talked to them over time like because you could imagine okay maybe at first you get a sort of superficial you know I'm fine no it's fine I don't regret it and then you get underneath a little bit and they're kind of like I do we definitely had some people who were like listen I'm not like deeply ashamed and traumatized by it but if I look back you know I sort of expected more for myself and why did I do that but most people were like listen you know like like I think some of the themes especially to your point on the female side because like we're so I feel like as women you know it's it's so much more constrained sexually Mm -hmm. right men are given so much more license and women are you know kind of put in a box I think and so what always appeals to me is when we talk to women who got into the business and said, like, I was able to kind of rediscover, take ownership of my sexuality through the films. Like, that's a theme that's come up a bunch that makes me go like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A couple things related to that. I mean, one of them was uh, um, many of the women spoke that they didn't necessarily feel that attractive or they had body issues but then when they saw themselves or they were engaging in making these movies they were like wow i actually am really sexy and i I like yeah and i thought that was really cool yeah for sure i mean even the one thing i do remember being so like in the i'm trying to think i probably it would have been the very early 80s when i saw some pornography and i think the first thing i saw was sharon mitchell i don't know if you know who she is but she's very androgynous like flat chest did like tomboy kind of thing and i was like that's what a porn star looks like Mm -hmm. and i thought it was the coolest thing ever that it wasn't you know when you think about porn today well i feel like it's sort of gone over a curve so it's like if i think about the late 80s or 90s i think it you know especially if you think about strip clubs where it's like everyone had the boob jobs everybody was hairless everybody was a certain way you know like it felt like it, there was a period where things were conforming a little bit more okay but now with internet porn i mean i don't watch it a lot but like my sense is it opens up a niche for everybody yeah you know so it's like yeah you can get any any shape, size, or whatever. And that, to me, is, like, I, I like that personally. You know, the idea of, like, it widens acceptance of difference. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about porn today, if if you could. But, but I want to go back to the golden age of porn. 
um, which I, which is what your content is focused on. So it's the 60s, 70s, and 80s is what you guys are categorizing as the golden age. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's sort of. That's roughly it. I mean, it's there's some definitional debate, but yes, like we focus on, you know, probably mid 60s through um, late 80s, mostly. One of the characteristics of that time that I reve- that was revealed to me that I didn't fully connect was the availability of pornography. You used to have to go to a movie theater to watch porn. So is that that's correct, right? I mean, you couldn't you obviously we didn't have the internet. People didn't ha- have VCRs. So the only way to consume it would have been to go to a theater or I guess there were 16 millimeter film or something. Yeah, I was just going to say some some like a lot of things you'll hear from some of the male porn stars, especially were like, yeah, my dad had an eight millimeter projector and I would go downstairs and I'd find these things he bought under the counter. And that was their first exposure to porn. So you could get it, but it was obviously way more difficult. It hadn't been, you know, normalized through VCR or anything like that. So that means that someone getting into porn then is a completely different intention and experience than you are now. Because a lot of these people, they didn't think that anyone was going to see it. And a lot of them hadn't even seen their own porn because they hadn't, they would go to the opening, I guess they would have openings at the movie theater. Premieres. A premiere rather. And they wouldn't even go in, you know, so they didn't, it just was not something that they were expecting people to know about or their family to hear about or to see is is that is my understanding accurate yeah i think it's fairly accurate i would say the one exception was that there was a lot of crossover between films and magazines so Mm. you'll especially on the well on both sexes side i guess you'd hear about how people were going out on on you know film uh, photography shoots and so those uh, magazines i think were a lot more accessible so we've heard a lot of stories from people about like their family like finding out when like a colleague would hand a magazine over to them be like hey isn't this your daughter or something so you know it there was a little bit more exposure but yeah like for film i think one of the themes we hear a lot is um not maybe that at the time they didn't expect a lot of people to see it although that was part of it like hey it's going to be whoever walks into a porn theater but i think it was more the idea of because it was film you know it's not digital it's not tape you know it was literally film the idea like film was not thought to last. I think it was like this stuff will like degrade and disappear. So one of the more surprising things for people who are especially in the much earlier days, like the 60s and 70s, is the fact that like their films, quote unquote, you know, wound up on DVDs and now on streaming sites and all that stuff. And they were just like, didn't expect that to happen. Yeah. OK, yeah, that that sounds like that might be surprising for them. surprise (laughs) I think one of the other things that's interesting for me is like sometimes we'll like when we first started this I think a lot of the big names that were more out there it's sort of we talk to them they're easy to find you know and they're more owning their past for me personally some of the more interesting conversations we have are with people who you know are not out there and so we really have to track them down and sometimes those people have big fan followings now and they have no idea like they don't go back and look at themselves, even with the internet, which is shocking to me. Some of them are like, wait, there are like fan sites for me and groups for me. And they're just like scratching their heads about it. And it's like, that is such an interesting disconnect. 
Are you like, t- are you speaking of Helga? <laughs> but I mean, she's pro- she's one of them, but she's not alone. You know, Helga's yeah, Helga's she's really of an older generation, so she was like the mom even in the early days. So she's a unique character, but like a lot of them, you know, who really kind of went on and moved on in their life, like again, literally for some of these people, it was like, yeah, I did I made like they shot a good few times, but like a lot of times they would shoot and all that footage would wind up in different places. So what they, they may have had like eight shoots or something like that. And it would propagate into say like 20 films or something like that. And so they had no idea. It was such a small thing for them, you know? So the idea the legs that this thing's had over time is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the nature of, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not like, I have nothing to do with, television or film and what I do for a living. But I get that feeling. I watch these interviews of people that were on like the Brady Bunch. And I kind of get that feeling where like, yeah, we kind of did it for five summers when we were kids. And now it's kind of out there. And we're we're sort of being dragged back into it. And yeah, we'll kind of, you know, I'll join the conversation to make the money. But it is sort of weird that like technology has taken a experience that was something that they did you know for a limited period of time and it's turned into this something that something that just won't go away exactly and imagine if like marcia brady did anal right so it's like just multiply that that sort of shock by x percent i think that might have to be the key quote that i use in promoting this imagine if marsha brady, <laughs> marsha did, brady anal. did anal <laughs> i'm sure there's a parody out there there's a par- <laughs> like the porn parodies are my favorite so so do you think that when these films were being made because the one thing I have not done is I have not watched films from like beginning to end to understand the creative component, the story, et cetera. Is that something that was part of this when these films were being made more of a creative energy that was put into it and thought thoughtfulness? It depends on who you talk to, but I'd say from the early director's point of view, Absolutely. You know, they were in New York. They wanted to get into film. There was no industry here. And the way you could get money was through sex films. And so they were just really interested in the craft of film. And so um, they really tried, you know, to create real, you know, works within very limited confines. You know, like I think I can't remember who said it, but one of the directors said to me, like, yeah, you could do anything with a hundred thousand dollar budget back in those days. But imagine if you had five thousand. Like that's why I'm a craftsman and those people weren't, because <laughs> I had to create in such with such constraints. Um and I think, you know, what's interesting in the performers is there's a real mixed bag. Like a lot of them were trying to break into acting. And so they would pick up the sex work, maybe not so much because that was like, that's the way they would get into acting, but because they could perform, you know, they did sort of consider it performance and they could bring something to it and then it would give them money. But, you know, other people did it just for money or, you know, sometimes, especially on the men's side, like it was for sex. It was just, you know, so it's like a very large variety, but a lot of people did, try to create something real there you know whether it was from like the story and the production to the performance they would bring they they really wanted to be 
you know, creative crafts people. And some of the famous people like of the time would like uh, Woody Allen's crews when they weren't shooting his films would work on sex films and, you know, stuff like that. Like you would have a lot of or not a lot of but some crossover. Yeah, I did hear that. Uh, That was surprising to me. A lot of people that you interviewed mentioned that people were working day jobs working on legit films or whatever they were called. And then they would work a night job doing the porn. So were there any successful transitions of people that were using adult films as a way to express and develop their creativity? And then eventually they got into something that was more mainstream? Yeah, um, not that that many. You know, there really was a stigma, uh, I think, that, you know, kind of hung over you, you know, certainly for, for women. So there'd be some crossover like Andrew True you mentioned you know she went from porn to queen of pop and um, you know there were definitely other exceptions behind the camera I think you found more people who would cross over like cinematographers or you know certain directors they were able to move into other industries and you know some of them are willing to talk about that now and some of them not (laughs) some people that we've wanted to go after who are really critical i mean not big names so it wouldn't it's not like i'm trying to hide something from your audience but um you know they've just sort of arm length to the past because they even to this day they might be worried about the impact on their career or sometimes because there was some shadiness in the business dealings around these films that some people are still frightened for their safety which i find funny but you know if you're that frightened i think it sticks with you Okay. So one of the things that you mentioned that you like, or the types of interviews that you like the most are ones where you're telling a story. And I think you said that you consider yourself a storyteller. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, I aspire to be a storyteller. So I'm sure like a lot of creative people who come on, um, you know, or creative, quote, unquote, you know, it's like, it's hard to own your creativity and feel like, you know, I am a storyteller, filmmaker, but that's what I like to do. The thing that impacts me most personally are deep, you know, like personal stories or personal, intimate, I'll say, not personal. But um, and so since I respond to that so much, I like to try to create that. And so, you know, we we work in a lot of media. You know, we started with with film. We moved to podcasts. We love writing. So a lot of my favorite things that are on the realtorreport.com are, are written pieces. Um, some of those are, are have been optioned now for film. So hopefully someday they'll be made. Whoa, into really? Wow, that's exciting. It it is, you know. It, I'm always like, I'm I'm Debbie Downer because I'm like, it'll be exciting if it ever gets made. But it's nice to know that it has a shot. It's closer than it was when it was just sitting on our site. Um, but yeah, it's really trying to figure out how to creatively tell a story that's going to resonate with people, um, which I guess is at the core of any creative endeavor. Yeah. I bet your audience is like, finally, they're going to talk about creativity. Why are they talking about sex so much? <laughs> and like, sex is creative. But uh, yeah, so it's really, you know, trying to just create something that people would have an emotional response to, right? And that might linger with them at least a little bit in this world of, you know, getting bombarded with media, you know, 24-7 and 15-second sound bites. So that's the aspiration. Cool. Now, have you always, is this something that you had as a child that you were 
creative or that you wanted to see yourself as a storyteller? No, not at all. Like, I think I, for a long time, I was one of those people, like, like I loved to go to music shows, but never thought I could be a musician. I would love to watch films, but never thought I could be a filmmaker, you know, and just sort of thought I would be on the receiving end of that okay. and had this mental block about it. And so the one thing I would say for people who are listening to your podcast to try to figure out like how to do it, it's like, it's just like, just do it. You know, it's like, if it interests you at all, like, don't worry about not being good enough or, you know, not sort of creating something new. It's like, you just have to roll up your sleeves and start trying. Like, I'm a, I, I mean, in, across life, I'm a total 99% perspiration person. Yeah. Um, I just really believe that you just work, 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 work. And, you know, there's always going to be people who are better and whatever it might be. But if you can just look to yourself and, and, and say, am I getting better at creating something that I can feel good about? you know, that one person out there might connect to. I think that's pretty powerful. I would completely agree with that. I always use the correlation uh, or mapping this to snowboarding. Uh, because huh. if you wa- if you want to learn how to snowboard, it's always going to suck when you first start. But the <laughs> only way to learn how to snowboard is you have to just do it. And eventually it will get easier and you'll get and eventually you'll be able to snowboard. And I think particularly with creative endeavors, because I feel like there's so many people that I talk to that are saying, I want to do this that's creative, but there's always a fear of starting. There's something that's just holding them back. And in your suggestion of just doing it, I think is so important. Totally. And like, you know, if you're like any normal person, you're going to think it sucks in the beginning, but don't be discouraged because everybody feels that way. It's like we all think that it's crappy. And so like, you know, I, you know, one cheat quote unquote that might help some people is like look to people that you admire right so I love writing and so I'll look to writers that I admire and I won't know them by name but I'll just be like I'll read a piece or something and I'll say okay what's really resonating for me here you know and I'll kind of like try to boil it down I'll be like okay it's the economy of words I really love how less is more here and then I'll try to emulate that in my work you know and I feel like that can be a helpful way to start, um, you know, kind of getting better. So it may feel like derivative at first and like you're, you know, just recreating what somebody does, but it'll help build your muscle. Yeah. Yeah. I think just staying in it. Yeah. Just staying in it. Uh, But I feel like there's so many distractions for people these days that there's so many more distractions that staying with staying with it and staying in it it can be I almost feel like it's more challenging currently than it was for people whatever I don't know like in the 50s or 60s where there just was not all of this outside stuff bombarding us and YouTube and Facebook and all of this crap and Netflix you know and when you when you're doing that stuff you're not exercising your creative muscle you know, you're not not necessarily developing yourself creatively. You're not staying in it. I, I don't know. Would you agree with that? 
Um, I mean, it sounds like two parts to what you're saying. One is, is there more stuff today? And I would, you know, it certainly feels like, you know, it's um, you watch everybody on the subway with their face down into their phone. Like in the old days, you would just be sort of staring out or having a book and stuff. So, yes, I definitely feel like there is more ways to distract ourselves. And that's its own show about like the probably evilness of the world and trying to kind of placate the masses and keep uh-huh. us away from ourselves. Um, you know, but does it take you away from your creativity? I think it's a, it's a, it's a mix. Cause like sometimes when I will watch a Netflix show, I mean, I guess I feel two things about it. Like one is sometimes I can get really inspired by something I see yeah. produced by somebody else and it can give me an idea. So, you know, I know you're not saying, you know, never watch a show or whatever, but you know, it's, it's not an either or for me. Mm-hmm. And also like, I think I like the difference between Ashley, my partner and myself in this endeavor is like, he has such a tremendous work ethic. Like he will, you know, work a full day at his corporate job and then like come home, like grab something fast to eat and like sit for four hours heads down on creating content. And I don't have that discipline. So, you know, I'll work a full day. I'll be tired, I'll come home, maybe I'll work out, I'll grab something to eat, I'll have a glass of wine, and then I just yeah. want to veg out, like, I just don't, so, so it's, um, for me, it's like, it's partly that there's more distractions that make it easier for me to kind of lean into my lesser angels, um, and partly just my nature, which is not, like, I love to just, like, sit on a sofa and read a magazine and then, like, fall asleep with it on my face. So <laughs> I think, you know, like, that probably for me is one of the harder things personally yeah. from a creative perspective to your point. Like, I do think, like, the more you work the muscle, the better that you'll be. Like, so if anybody's listening to this, like, looking for tips, I feel like if you are one of those people who can kind of force yourself to focus like just say listen i will just say like you know on the weekend you know until noon when i get up like i will not let myself do anything but write or paint or sketch or whatever it is that you want to do and you can stick to that that's probably the best thing because i always think about the stat they say about attention switching and how it completely takes you out of flow and you know so it's like if you're sitting there and you're trying to write and then your phone beeps and you pick up the message and you're you text your friend back and you put it down you're like oh that only took a second but it takes your brain a lot to reorient to what you were doing and get back into that state so try to block out the noises and like i'm saying this to myself more than anybody else like that's the constant battle yeah, no, and I would agree with that. Like, I think multitasking is just ridiculous, and it it doesn't work for me. I c- I can really do w- one thing effectively at once, um, and like in, you know, because interruptions, like you said, can just r- are very distracting. I know one thing specifically I do is uh, when I'm painting, I well sometimes I don't even bring my phone. Um, yeah, I just don't even bring it. Do you set goals? Yeah, like, do you say to yourself, like, I'm not going to leave until I've, like, gotten the base layer of this painting established, or, like... I do. Well, do? I, I sometimes... It depends on what's going on. If I have a an installation that requires, like, 10 paintings, I create a schedule. Um, mm. And I know exactly... Because there's a, there's a flow for the painting. 
um, yeah, like the base layer, the you know the underpainting, the first layer, etc. So I will set up a schedule and I try to adhere to it. Um, you know, the reality is with the painting, it's not like being a project manager where I can just force myself through it. Some days it's just not going to work. Like it's just not, it's not there. And I have to move on to something else. So even though I plan to do the first layer of paint on Tuesday and Wednesday, you know, I can get halfway into Tuesday and be like, yeah, this isn't going to happen today. And I have to move on to something else. So I definitely do try to use that part of my brain that has been trained over the years as a project manager. Um, and it does, it definitely helps to structure things. Do you like, is there any common denominator to the days that don't work for you? Like, is there anything that's going to predict a bad day for you? Um, yeah, the fact that I haven't been painting in a while. So if I to get if I take a break, it is really, really hard. It just takes a while to get up to speed again. It t- takes days and days and days. But once I get going, I'm okay. Um, but it's really weird. So I will so if I'm restarting after taking a couple of weeks off, you know, I'll go to the studio and I'm like, Rick, you got to stay as long as you can. And then I hit that wall and I'm like, okay, I'm done. And then next day I just have to force myself to try to make it last longer. And then eventually I will get up to a, uh, a, a spot where it's at a productive level. And, and is it the same one you write? Um, actually writing is probably easier for me. Um, I would say that, yeah, it's, that is pro it's probably a similar setup, a, a similar scenario. Uh, but I would say that I could probably turn that on and off quicker. Interesting. Like the thing that kills me, uh, like for people who are like, we're saying, just do it and get into it. Like the one thing I'll say is when I'm in the zone, nothing feels better. Right. Like, so when I'm writing and it's flowing and like, I get so excited by the story and stuff. And yet the, like a couple of hours later, I'll just be like, yeah, or I could sit back on the couch now and like watch a show or go meet a friend for a drink or whatever. Like, that's the thing that kills me about myself. And like, so the one thing I try to remind myself, and again, I keep thinking like, what are tips to give people for how they can really tap into it is like, try to stay in touch with how good it feels when you're when you hit that flow, because it's, it's really satisfying. It's very satisfying. And I would say that I, I tell people that it can be like bipolar, because when you create something, when something comes out of you that you created and people receive it and they connect with it, it is the best feeling, as I'm sure you know, Um, because because it's so personal and it's a experience and a joy. I wouldn't say joy is the word, but it just stimulates something inside of you that I never got in a corporate job. Like even when I had like a big successful project, it like it never felt as um, satisfying as when something that I created myself is received by something, someone in a way that I uh, wanted. On the flip side, when it fails, it's really it can be really devastating. Huh. Do you find like because I find, I mean, I guess there's like abject failures, but like 
you know, things that are good, like they're going to resonate with some people, but there'll always be some people it doesn't resonate with. And then same thing, like, you know, even when things don't resonate, there'll be a few people who do. So it's like, it's very easy to think, get yourself in that mindset of like, it sucks, it sucks, it sucks. Because you'll, it's, you know, just like we go to Twitter and we look at the bad things, you know, about stuff instead of being like, oh, look at this uplifting thing. Um, Like that's another kind of thing to not, I think it's just like whatever you need to do for yourself not to get discouraged, like whatever's going to make you go back the next day and and do it again. Because when it does feel good, like it feels good and it will like and finding that satisfaction for yourself, which is like interesting. So bringing it back to adult film like we'll meet a lot of people once they realize that there's some interest in this they're like oh I should tell my life story you know so you'll get a lot of people who are back from the industry who who should tell it and I always ask them like why do you want to tell it because like if you want to tell it to make money like it's not going to happen you know Mm -hmm. Harry Reams one of like the biggest names in the industry like the advanced gets like for his book was very small like it's just not going to happen but if you want to do it for yourself because you just want to tell that story like we have just finished helping another sort of exploitation filmmaker write his um biography and like i think for him he's just like listen even if like two people pick it up like i would be thrilled like he just wanted to have his story out there you know so it's like the same thing when we create ourselves sort of try to find the thing in yourself that's gonna motivate versus you know, like anything in our lives being guided just by external validation or whatever, especially in the creative realm. Cause like, there's always going to be people who hate your shit. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. That's a depressing ending statement. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, but it's true. I mean, but, but it's just something that you have, I mean, but that's kind of just being a person on earth there's always going to be people that like you people that don't like you people that respond to you just being yourself you know you're you're always told just be yourself well sometimes if you're just being yourself you know people don't like you (laughs) right and and, you know that's just that's just what it's like uh you know being a person so i think there's some of it that's just be uh, being an adult and realizing that um, but I think that when you're producing something from the creative part of you, I think that it can be, you're a little, I think you're a little bit more vulnerable. So, so are you one of those people who thinks like everybody's creative and it's just finding your outlet? No, I don't think that at all. I don't. Interesting. I think that, I think there's definitely a, well, I mean, I went to college for engineering, so that is not creative. And the people that really, I find well, that so creative. Well, I think that I went to. I have an undergrad in engineering, so I think if I did graduate studies, it probably would have been different because graduate studies is you know engineering is using like science to solve problems. We weren't necessarily in undergrad solving problems. We were just kind of learning the foundations of you know chemistry, physics calculus. I studied plastics engineering. So we studied the fundamentals of plastic processing, all this boring stuff. Um, But it wasn't necessarily about learning how to solve, in my experience in where I went to school, about really how to solve problems or how to create something new. Um, Now, I think that if I went to 
got a master's or a PhD, that's probably what would have happened. It would have been like taking these foundations and using and being trained to solve problems. Um, so I guess my point to answer your question, I think a lot of the people that I went remembering back then so many years ago, I don't necessarily think of those folks as creative. Now, maybe it's because we're in an environment where they weren't tasked to do it. You know, they weren't being pressed to be creative. So do you yeah. think that everyone has a creative uh, part of them? I, I do. Hmm. Like, I think I, I do. I think, well... It depends, I guess, how you define creative, right? But like, I think all of us have a ability to create. I think some of us are more talented than others. You know, I'm never going to be born to dance like, you know, Fred Astaire, whatever it might be. But I think, um, you know, I guess part of it is like, in my mind, I'm like, I'm sure there's one thing in the world that like, I'm really pretty good at. But like, what if I never do that one thing? Like, what if like, I would have been a champion table tennis player, but like, I've never done it. And that's it. And I think I feel that way about people in general, like, all of us have an ability to be creative. Um, you know, and it's just like, do you want to tap into that and like, push into that and kind of find what that is. But I'm a very I'm sure that's offensive to some artists and, you know, artists in the kind of general term, you know, who feel like, you know, no, there's something here. So I don't feel like everybody's going to hang in the Louvre or anything, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I just think if it's just about um, creating something that you might call artistic or whatever, like, like, again, it's about just doing it and figuring out why you're doing it. If you're doing it just for yourself to kind of put it out there, like get a hook rug, like crochet. I don't care what you do, but like just do it because there's such satisfaction in the process. And if you don't like it, if you don't find that satisfaction, it's not for you to try something else or whatever. So I have a very annoying broad definition, but not like you get a gold star for just coming to school, like, you know, as a kid. It's like, come to school. Everybody should come to school. You're not going to get a gold star for it. Only a few people are going to get gold stars and like hang in the Louvre. But try. Okay, I think that is good guidance and advice. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we will agree to disagree. I love it. No, I do. No, I think that, I mean, because I think that most people have the capability to be creative. I just, I guess my example about being in engineering is I felt like that was an ex a period of, in my life where I was with people that like a subset of people that I didn't necessarily think of as creative, but in most everyday life, um, I would, I would agree with you. One thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is like, uh, I think you were saying something about you could be a, a, a champion ping pong player or, uh, uh -huh. they, you know, and I always think about new industries that are created that have, that have, um, like the, like, um, internet technology, like all, cause you know, you and I used to work in that industry together and there were so many people that were extremely talented and creative, not like visual designers, but just creative way they solved business problems, et cetera. And I always wonder if that industry wasn't created that kind of tapped into something for them, you know, they could have gone into some, they did, may not have been able to see their potential of what kind of creative person they could have been. Maybe, but like, who knows what else it would have been? I guess 
because like even to your point of your your schoolmates like that context didn't sound like one that unleashed creativity you yeah. know you were probably being lectured at and stuff like that but these people who are sitting around you who you don't get a chance to see it like i wonder if in a different context you know if somebody brought them in and you know put them in front of clay and said let's like sculpt like rodin like what would have happened you know what i mean so it's like being given permission or giving yourself permission to try to explore, you know, and I think that that's part of it. Just, you know, for, for creativity, I think it's just like really kind of listen to yourself and figure out what, what gets you going. You know, it's not to look at it and be like, I should be a painter or mm -hmm. I should play guitar or whatever. Yep. It's not like, you know, it's like, do you listen to somebody playing guitar and just like get transported by that, then pick up a guitar and try it. You know, it's so it's it's um, it's about finding that thing, I think, that really interests you for yourself and cultivating it. What are your thoughts on the availability of porn today? Like, I think the question of, you know, does pornography really distort your ideas of sexuality or does it does it unleash something is a is a very compelling question. Right. Because, like, I mean, I think even back in the old days, it would have been like that, right? Like it's the difference between objectifying somebody and treating them more like a subject and trying to connect to them. Like anything that diminishes people, right? Or sort of takes the humanity out of them so that you can look at it is going to be, um, is going to be fraught, I guess, you know, meaning it, you can take that to bad places, right? Like yeah. you can look at porn and completely objectify somebody in my mind and like, you know, have a great orgasm or something, but that doesn't mean like you're going to objectify them always. Like mm -hmm. if you are more of a healthy person, hopefully that just fits into a um, well-rounded thing. But I feel like, you know, for nowadays, it's like you get the worst of both worlds because you get all this access and this weirdness. And then like, you know, there's like less sex education in schools and it's more puritanical. It's like a, like if you don't talk about it and and contextualize it, then I think, yeah, there's going to be risk to it as with anything. But I know? mean, but let's be real. You can't talk and contextualize porn to a 14 year old boy who can watch it on his iPhone. Like I can't imagine if I had access to gay porn when I was a teenager on my phone. Like I can't even imagine I never would have left my room. Honestly, right. like what would right. that have done? What would that have done to me? Well, I feel like every 14 year old boy with or without it did it. But like, I guess it really depends. Like, I feel like we're gonna end with like parents talk to your kids. But I feel like if somebody like the thing for me that I remember and like I love my parents, God bless them, but like, you know, they were not we were not having open and honest conversations about like sex and love and and emotion and like, you know, like they when I was a kid, they gave me what's happening to me is the book. And then like we sort of didn't talk about it. And there was a little sex education in there. Like if somebody had said to me as a 14 year old girl who also had hormones raging and stuff and was trying to figure it out, somebody just like talk to me more about sex or like pointed me more to books that talk about sex and like said to me like you know what's happening in your body right mm -hmm. now you know let me explain the chemistry of what's happening and why it feels the way it does and what probably is gonna it would at least give me a little bit more um you know i, I feel like hopefully at that point you'd have a little more maturity to be able to take that in mm -hmm. and, and help you balance out that amazing porn that you're going to be watching the other 23 hours of the day you know what I mean so it's like I think that's all I, I would say is like somebody who like 
you know, it's the same thing with guns or whatever, but obviously not to the same degree. But like, you know, if you just sort of watch NRA TV and like give somebody a gun and whatever, and then you don't talk to them about the larger context that guns live in in the world, it's going to be very easy to have one view of it. So I'm just a big fan of giving like as much information as is appropriate for somebody at the time, which is a big question Mm -hmm. because like our brain, you know, sometimes we're not ready to take on certain things, but like not underestimating people's ability to take in more context and like, really trying to do that so at least we make better informed decisions as we're sitting there consuming that porn on our phone right okay (laughs) so unhelpful and that's why i'm not a parent (laughs) there you go and and that's that's another key quote from this interview and that's why i'm not a parent (laughs) exactly because i could not guide a young person for anything one of the people that you interviewed name was jennifer wells and I believe it was her that she talked about her treatment in the industry was always about respect and no one ever treated her inappropriately. But when she tried to do legitimate films, she said that was constantly happening where she would be propositioned to, you know, engage in sexual behavior with directors or whatever in order to move her career forward and she and she actually did not pursue the legitimate paths and she ended up just sticking with the porn because of treatment and this just made me and and that was kind of something that I I didn't really hear of a lot of mistreatment from the, mm. the women and then I think of like this Harvey Weinstein guy how like all of these actresses are just being completely treated completely inappropriately and i found it yeah. fascinating that in the porn industry it really didn't seem to be happening yeah you know and i'm sure again there are corners where you're going to find stuff like that but first of all like if you're going to be having the sex you maybe didn't don't need to lead with the sex like they were going to be having the sex anyway even with like some of the directors would have sex with with the you know performers and stuff like that so mm-hmm. you know i always like i so i i agree like jennifer was not the only person who said that we heard that from a lot of people you know and um you know who said not just because they were porn stars meaning like they were known for porn and so they would go in and get solicited but or solicited but um that they were trying to break into the business before porn and they were getting the casting couch all the time and mm-hmm. then when they were like, oh, well, I might as well do porn. Like, they that didn't happen to them. It was definitely something that we heard quite a bit. You know, that, that said, like, the one thing I also don't want people to walk away from the, you know, Rialto Report, this sort of oral history project that we do, is thinking it was all rosy, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, it wasn't all terrible. It wasn't all rosy. It was a spectrum, right? And all we're trying to do is continue to get underneath that to understand all the nuance, you know, in today's world, like to your point with porn and stuff like that, like, you know, or even politics, like think about politics. Like, the, there's no room for nuance. Nobody wants to go into any complexity or gray area, you know, but like creativity, like there's a lot of beauty that happens in the shadows. And so, um, you know, that, I know that feels like a long answer to what you were saying, but like, you know, yes, it's true. Like, yes, we've heard more positive than negative, um, but it doesn't all roses. And, you know, we're constantly on the lookout to see that we're not, painting a superficial picture 
And I think that you succeeded. I am so pleased that I got to do all of this research and get to listen to your <laughs> podcast. I, I've been, as I mentioned earlier, I think I mentioned earlier, I've been telling everyone about your podcast. I just think it's, oh, oh, oh. it's so well done. Um, it's extremely thoughtful and just really high quality. And I'm really excited that I got to have this conversation with you today. Oh, thanks. I feel the same. And I'm so glad that you're painting and writing and not just um, project managing because you're so much, you're just this full, wonderful person and I can see it in your work. And I'm glad we're getting to experience some of that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. So where can people find the Rialto Report? So you can always go to our website, which is therialtoreport.com, and that's R-I-A-L-T-O, report.com. And that's where you'll find not just the podcast, but you know the written pieces. Uh, we have photo essays, things like that. Or on any podcatching app, you'll find the Rialto Report. Okay, great. Thank you. This was awesome. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.